Amen. Today I want to look at the Olivet Discourse. How many of you know the Olivet Discourse? <laughs> okay. This is found in Matthew chapter 24. And uh, this is the disciples having a chat with Jesus about, you know, the, the end times, basically, if we can call it like that. Um, and the Mount of Olives is in Jerusalem. And this is a photo from the Mount of Olives or somewhere around there. So it obviously doesn't quite look the same as it would have back then. I wonder if this pointy thingy works. Uh, if I turn it on, it will work, yeah. So some, some people will, I mean, the, the, the generally historically accepted view is that this little foundation here is known as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And uh, most people will tell you that's where the temple stood. Some other people will say, no, it wasn't there. That was a Roman fort, and it was closer sort of towards the end of here in the city of David. But we're not going to look at where the temple was. The point is, Imagine this big building over there. I don't have a photo of, the Sol of uh, King Herod's temple. I should have put it there. But imagine this huge, um, must have been three times the size of the Dome of the Rock that's there at the moment. Standing there. Now, on the hill, they can see this massive, magnificent, glorious temple and the holy city of Jerusalem. This is what they would have seen. And if we look at the world around us, especially at the moment, we think everything's going wrong. And uh, lots of pastors are calling this the end times, the end times. Christ is coming soon. And while Jesus did tell us he's coming soon, I think it is fitting to have a look at this whole conundrum. Uh, is what has been said here really applicable to us today? What is said about the end times? And I've labeled this part one because, as you'll see, there are three questions that the disciples ask in Jesus. Uh, and the fancy word or theological word for all of this is what we call eschatology. Okay, it comes from the Greek, Greek word eschatos, which means the end or end. And ology, well, any clever person that studies something with an ology means it must be academic thought. <laughs> I'm joking. Ology means the study of. So study of the end times, hence we're looking at the end times. So like I said, this is in um, Matthew chapter 24. It's after Jesus uh, has a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember, he rode in on the donkey and everybody greeted him with palm leaves and all that, and they were very happy to see him. They thought he was a political messiah. Okay, so the, they thought he was going to come and deliver them from the Roman occupation. So, and part of that was because he was doing so many wonderful miracles. So everyone in Jerusalem, we wonder, well, why did he have such a wonderful entry into Jerusalem and then died a criminal's death? Uh, it's because they welcomed him in because they thought he was a big fancy uh, political savior from the Roman occupation. Anyway, so this is after this whole thing. Um, and him and his disciples retreat to the Mount of Olives. And this is where we see that deeper disciple-master connection. We, we see him interacting with lots of people throughout the New Testament. But we sometimes miss uh, the, the deep, close, personal relationship that Jesus had with his disciples. This was a master, a teacher, and his students, his disciples. And that was a very close and intimate connection back in those days. This was where Jesus could speak freely with them, where he could uh, almost confide in them. This was his small group. And so we, we need to bear that in mind when we look at this passage. He was undoubtedly sought after in Jerusalem, you know, after this whole thing. Uh, but now is just the time for an intimate discussion with him and his disciples. And here he predicts the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple. They're standing on the Mount of Olives. They're looking at this big, magnificent building in a big, magnificent Jerusalem. And he says, that building's going to collapse. It's not going to stand. 
And this was quite profound because the temple was the ultimate symbol of Jewish faith. If we look at the Old Testament, we look at um, you know, God's uh, working throughout the, the Israelites. The temple was God's house on earth. And not anywhere on earth, it was with them in Jerusalem. So this was a very special place, a very special symbol, the ultimate symbol, in fact, of the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith. Without the temple, the Jews had no place of worship, no Jerusalem and no faith. So thus, this was a profound statement by Jesus, and it obviously must have shocked the disciples to the point that they ask these questions. Okay, Jesus makes this profound statement, and so they can ask him questions now because they've started a discussion. And like I said, this is the disciple-master connection. So this is where they can ask him these things. So some Bibles will have the heading or the pericopia, the disciples' two questions. But the context and response of Jesus indicates that there are actually three points to answer. I believe there are three questions that he deals with here. Firstly, they ask him about the timing of these events, which is what we're going to look at today. This is why this is part one. Then secondly, they ask him about the signs of his second coming, which we'll deal with when I preach again. And thirdly, they ask about the end of the age. When is the end coming? So for part one today, we're going to be looking at Matthew 24. We're going to look at verses 4 to 26. I'm not going to read the first two over there, uh, the first three rather. Um, this is just them going out to the temple. So now in verse 4, when uh, we pick up what we're looking at today. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will mislead many people. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for these things must take place. Excuse me. And that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and mislead people. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will become cold. But the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out of his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Moreover, pray that when you flee, it will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or he is over here, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, 
even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us and guide us, that we won't be speaking into the word, but that your word will be speaking to us, and that you will teach us and correct us uh, as you lead us in all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so from the outset, we need to understand that this was said to the disciples. Remember I said that close connection? It was said to the disciples at a specific time, for a specific purpose, with a specific meaning, and with a specific understanding. So it does not help to draw loose parallels with what we are experiencing today and apply it to everything that's said in this passage. We're going to get misled then. We cannot read into the word. We have to read out for it. The word has to read to us. So like I said, this is only it's a, quite a meaty passage here, but this is the first question that Jesus responds to the disciples. He asks, the disciples ask, when will these things happen? Um, yeah, we can see them in, in verse 3. Disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? Okay, That's referring to what Jesus was saying about the temple. And uh, the two sort of parts that I want to look here is the beginning of birth pains. Jesus calls us these things that are happening, the beginning of the birth pains. Now he begins this with a warning. Okay, See to it that no one misleads you. Why does he say that? Well, because in the whole history of the Bible, and in church history especially, People have been making rash and unfounded predictions about things. We like to say, oh, we're living in these times, you know, floods are coming and there's earthquakes and famines and all that. But Jesus warns us in the word against letting people deceive us into believing these reckless statements. This includes those who claim to be Christ or those who claim to be a Christ. You know, we look at these sort of mega church pastors with their prosperity gospel and healing and wealth and all that, and they, they masquerade around their own magnificence, their own power, their own miraculous healing. You know, they'll say things like, ah, you know, lay hands on you in the name of Jesus Christ and fire and all these wonderful, magnificent performances and stuff. But, but what's really happening at the end of the day? I don't think the glory is going to God in those kinds of situations. Now, yes, this was applied to the disciples, and I just said we need to be careful about applying it to ourselves. But Jesus makes a caution here. It is a warning. And when he warnings, we need to take note. Specifically, we need to understand the reason behind the cautioning. Why is he warning the disciples here? You see, today is not the only time that nation has risen against nation, or that we've heard of wars and earthquakes and famines and disease and poverty and floods and everything else. These have been going on forever. You know, perhaps we just are more aware of them today because we have, uh, as uh, humans, have evolved technologically and uh, the media's gotten a lot more um, intrusive into our lives. I mean, you just turn on your phone and you can look at anything that's happening anywhere. So we are more aware of this, but these have been going on forever. I mean, look at the Jews, for example. The, Decem- the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Since then, they have been living by the sword. Throughout the, the first centuries, um, first century, and uh, up into the Middle Ages, uh, Jews have been persecuted and uh, being killed, being slaughtered, being living away from their homeland. Uh, a more recent one that we know of is the Holocaust, which was not even a hundred years ago. So th- we just have to, to look at them, for example. I mean, we've been living by the sword. They've been living by the sword since the beginning. 
But just so to, to make sure that I'm not talking nonsense to you this morning, I did go and do some history with some uh, of these things. And I've just included a couple here. In 755 AD, something was known as the An Lushan Rebellion. Uh, 13 million people killed in a civil war in China. In the 11 and 1200s, Mongolian conquests in Eurasia, they estimate somewhere between 30 and 57 million people perished. Just famine and starvation in China and India and Russia throughout the, you know, the 1000s, between 56.4 million and 138.1 million people. In World War II alone, the lowest estimate of casualty is 70 million, and the highest is 118 million people. In six years, they estimate up to 118 million people perished. Up until you know, the 1900s, the average life expectancy was no more than 35 years. So imagine the famine, the disease, the war, the malnutrition, and the poverty that the world experienced. Uh, for so long, it's not just what we're having now, for so long. In fact, our average life expectancy now is much higher than it was then. So you could almost say we are living more comfortably now than if you had to live 1,000 years ago or so, or not even, 200 years ago. Um, but the fact remains, the situation we have today is not unique to this age. Uh, if it was unique to this age, we would have known about it. You know, it would have been very obvious. But we've been seeing this, these things since the beginning. Jesus even warns about them. And he describes this as the beginning of the birth pains. The Greek word there is uh, odinon. Okay, and what does that mean? Well, in the context of, in which Jesus is speaking to his disciples, these are the preemptive sorrows, the beginning of the birth pains, okay, to be experienced before the ultimate destruction of the temple. So the implication here, the beginning of birth pains, is that there is a final result. It's not an abstract, okay, we're going to experience sorrows for a time. They're the beginning of the birth pains. The final result is the birth, okay? There's a result at the end. And uh, it just, it seems to me uh, that this is leading to the ultimate destruction of the temple. And this is where we need to understand the passage through the Jewish lens, through the lens that the disciples were listening to Jesus when he was talking. You see, it may seem tamer to us today than World War II, for example, but this was the entire Jewish way of life, their religion, their identity, about to be wiped out, gone. And... Um, some may say this is Christ's second coming, but that is not evident in his answer. He told the disciples the temple will be utterly destroyed, and their question is, when will this happen? When will this happen? Not the, the third question, which we'll look about the next time, or second time and third time I preach, we'll do, we'll do part two and part three. But the, the question they ask is, when will this happen? Like I said, referring to the temple. So Jesus is talking about the temple. But he also speaks from um, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, kill you, be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will be offended, betray one another, love of most will grow cold, many false prophets. He endures to the end will be saved. He focuses shift from the Jewish perspective. Now to, I don't want to call it the Christian perspective, but definitely to the disciples' perspective. Okay? To the disciples. Um, this period includes persecution, betrayal, false prophets, like I said. Uh, so that, uh, we read about this constantly through the New Testament. He talks about the beginning of the birth pains for the Jews. Then he says, but you will be handed over to trial and tribulation. 
experience false prophets, betrayal, love of most will grow cold. And this is proved by the New Testament. Uh, Paul, especially, deals with many, many doctrinal issues in his letters. I mean, read 1 Corinthians, for example. In Acts, we read about the persecution of Christians, the hardships they faced, as well as in many extra-biblical sources. Um, there are lots of, lots of accounts of the persecution of Christians in this period, just before the destruction of the temple and especially afterwards. For example, another one, Alexander the coppersmith is one that Paul mentions by name, giving him uh, trouble. So this is kind of um, the Jewish faith coming to an end and the Christian one beginning. I say that very loosely. I'm not saying this is a definite and a definite, but from the perspectives that we're looking at now. The Jewish one is coming to an end, okay, in utter destruction, and the Christian one is beginning, but in a difficult period with a rough start, almost like a refining by fire, if you will. Jesus said many will fall away, but the one who endures to the end uh, will be saved. And the ultimate point of this is that the gospel of his kingdom will still be preached. So when we read this passage in the understanding of this context, it becomes incredibly exciting and devastating at the same time. We see the end. We see uh, the Jews losing everything. We see you know, the rough start to the believers starting the journey and preaching the gospel throughout the world. So this is actually a very, very exciting and thrilling part of history, especially in the Bible. And we, we don't read about everything that happens uh, but when we understand it through the lens of the disciples, then we start to realize what a big deal this is. This was a big event of great importance that is, like I said, otherwise lost on our historical understanding. So that is the beginning of the birth pains, time before the temple. Okay? Jews are going to experience lots of sorrow. The Christians are also going to experience persecution and stuff. But his gospel will still be preached then we get to what he calls, well, what I've dubbed, the abomination of desolation. This is the passage where he talks about um, all the bad things that are going to happen when it comes. Uh, and many people believe this to represent the great tribulation of the church or plays a part in that. Now, there's a lot of this in Revelation too, and maybe we'll get to that one day eventually um, when I sit down and do some more research. Uh, but if we, like again, read it in the context of of to whom Jesus is replying, in what context they're speaking, what are they talking about, uh, we see that this is more apparently concerning the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. He's talking from the Jewish perspective here. And he talks about the abomination of desolation as mentioned by the prophet Daniel. So let's go to Daniel. And that's in Daniel chapter 9, 25 to 27. This is the prophecy to which he's referring. Daniel uh, writes, Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It, talking about Jerusalem, will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After sixty-two years, sixty-two sevens, sorry, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. 
And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured about upon him. Poured out on him. Okay, so we've got lots to unpack here. Sevens represent a period of seven years. Most people, most scholars will agree that the sevens is a way of saying seven years, a period of seven years. We know that seven is a very important number in the Bible. So if we look at what Daniel is saying, seven times seven plus 62 times seven is 480 years. So from the time that the word is given out to go back to Jerusalem, to the destruction of the temple, he's given this time, 480 years. Now, uh, Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple on the walls in 538 BC. 480 years after that leaves us in 58 BC, which is well before Jesus, the anointed one. But Daniel makes a distinction. He says seven sevens and 62 sevens. So in that case, when he, with the distinction, it is also accepted that seven may be a multiple. The Hebrew is written in the plural. Hence, we could have 14, the lowest multiple of seven, 14. Now, when we take that, we've got seven times 14 plus 62 times seven, and that leaves us at 532 years which places us in 6 BC from the time that Cyrus declared that the Jews may return. And 6 BC is one of the most probable dates for, given for Jesus' birth, between 6 BC and 4 BC. Um, I kind of favor the 6 BC theory. But this places us right there in 6 BC. The word after in Hebrew prophecy as well does not mean at the end, simply in a period after the, the event. Okay, so not right at the end of something, but in a period afterwards. That's where uh, Daniel says, he says, after the 62 sevens, anointed one will be put to death. So that doesn't mean Jesus is going to be killed in 6 BC. It simply means the anointed one will come, and after that event, at a, at a point there, he will be put uh, to death. Another thing we need to think about is lack of flood and wars and things like that. People think, okay, well, uh, the end is coming with lots of floods and wars, and all these things that Daniel's talking about as well. But, but these are more aptly, uh, we can view them more aptly as metaphors. They make more sense in that context. Like a flood simply means the unstoppable and overwhelming force. If we look at how the Romans captured Jerusalem, it was indeed an over, unstoppable and overwhelming force. They just, the Jews had no hope no matter how hard they fought. The hard bit here is confirm a covenant. Uh, confirm a covenant. This is quite a difficult thing. I didn't find a very straightforward answer to this. But I believe this is a weighty way of, of describing the waging of a war. See, covenants are binding. The Jews understood what a covenant was because God had made a covenant to them as a special people. So covenants were very special, very important to the Jews. And when Daniel says that he will confirm a covenant with them, talking about the ruler of the people to come, I think this means the waging of a war, especially in light uh, of the fact that he says it will be seven years. So if we look at the first Roman-Jewish war, it lasted from 66 to 73 AD, which is a period of seven years. So that to me is the confirming of that covenant of war, seven years. In the middle of those seven years, 70 AD, doesn't have to be exactly in the middle, merely abstract in the middle of those war, of those seven years, the Romans besieged Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, effectively ending sacrifice and offering. 
What does Daniel say? He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And that's what we see happening over here. Furthermore, the abomination of desolation is a metaphor used in Old Testament prophecy to describe idolatry and pagan worship. Okay, something that causes utter destruction. We know idolatry and pagan worship, all those things. It destroys us from the inside out. And if we read in the, metaphor, in the, the context of this passage, this can be referring to the Romans. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that gets put in the holy place, uh, a specific object that gets placed there, the abomination of desolation. But we've got a very metaphorical passage here. So if we continue with the, with the metaphorical uh, atmosphere, we can understand the Romans to be the abomination of desolation, specifically their way of life, their religion, how they do things. And this is confirmed later on as well. After this, the Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the Romans come back in 130 AD, and they rebuilt Jerusalem. They named it Elia Capitolina, and they build it in honor of Jupiter, their god. So that confirms that the, there is an abomination of desolation, if you're looking for specific hard evidence of that. But like I said, more likely I consider it to be the Romans. So what does all of this mean? Well, Jesus is referring back to Daniel and his prophecy. And we looked at Daniel's prophecy, we've understood his prophecy. Now, if we apply that to what he's talking about here, it makes sense that this is talking about the destruction of the temple, about the destruction of Jerusalem, the desolation thereof. It's not referring to something to come or something abstract in the future, but there are very specific things in Daniel's prophecy and that Jesus says that points to the destruction of the temple. And Jesus says um, that there's nothing like this has ever happened or to come. Again, this is where we need to think in the Jewish state of mind, the Jewish perspective. What was the worst thing that had happened to the Jews up to this point? Or that could happen afterwards. Nothing greater than the destruction of their national and religious identity. Their whole being was desolated. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was gone. This was their being. And this is where it's very important to understand the history of the Israelites from the Old Testament, from Abraham up to this point. Jerusalem was everything to them. The temple was everything to them. So this was indeed the greatest tragedy to them. And I mean, I found this passage by Josephus, Josephus who was an ancient historian, and there's lots of good stuff uh, from him concerning these events and, you know, the history of the Jews and all that. But he writes after the, uh, the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He says, It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. Okay, quite fancy English there that he's writing in. Probably classical Greek, Kine Greek. Um, but that basically means that it was, it was just destroyed right to the ground, that nobody could ever believe that anyone had ever lived in Jerusalem. This was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those that were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind. 
So not only to the Israelites, not only to the Jews, but to all mankind, Jerusalem had fame, had magnificence. And truly the very view itself was a melancholy thing. For those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become desolate country everywhere, and its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city, and now saw it as a desert, but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. Even the foreigners. Josephus describes even foreigners who would come and lament at what happened to Jerusalem. For the war had laid waste all signs of beauty, uh, quite waste. Nor had anyone who had known the place before had come on a sudden to it now, would he have known it again. So basically, they didn't recognize it. Anybody who had seen Jerusalem before would not recognize it. That's how destroyed it was. That's how desolated it was. That's how desecrated it was. So this is the greatest tragedy to the Jews up to this point, and that ever has been, is what Jesus is talking about as well. He then talks about false prophets as well, mentions false prophets arising to deceive even the elect. Now, that could be talking about the Christians, and I think it is refer referring to the disciples. We see many uh, uh, false doctrine and false, doctrine and false um, prophets arising, Paul addressing them in the New Testament. But if we look at, at the Jewish perspective again, there were two men, Simon Bargiora and John of Giscala. These were the two prominent Jewish leaders at this time. And a civil war of sorts existed between the two. So there were two sects. The Jews were fighting against each other. Um, and Bargiora literally means son of a proselyte, okay? one who has been converted. So even his name had some kind of implication of you know, a, a messianic figure of sorts. One who has been converted. Now this guy is leading or, or leading part of the Jews. So this is also a warning against political messiahs. In the context of the destruction of the temple, of what happened to it, it's a warning against political messiahs. Jesus says, when someone says, behold, he's out there, do not go out, or he's in the inner rooms, do not listen to them, do not be deceived. I believe this is referring to political messiahs. Because the Jews were, and still are, expecting their Messiah. Jesus came to save us from our sins. They wanted someone to come and save them from the Romans. And so now that the Romans are outside Jerusalem, knocking on the gates, about to enter, this is a warning against those political messiahs. I will save you. Let's fight. You know? let's, let's beat back these Romans. I'm the appointed one. And here we already see two prominent people who... Um, who are leading sects, and are in fact at civil war with each other. If you go to Israel today, there are many rabbis who are in opposition to each other, many schools of thought, and very often these are led by, by one person. One person's got a large following of disciples, another person's got a large following of disciples, and very often the root of you know, the tension there, the disagreements there, lies in the fact that there are two opposing figures, two opposing central people. That's still happening today, and that's what we see happening here. We, there are even accounts of uh, these people killing moderate Jewish leadership, you know, people that wanted to kind of see a way out of this, putting them to death. There are accounts of them uh, destroying the, the, the food supplies and um, all other kinds of needs that the people needed in Jerusalem. 
Okay, Jerusalem was sieged, besieged by the Romans. So they couldn't get out, nothing could come in. And these leaders thought, okay, well, if we get rid of the food and that, it might coax people into fighting. And it might encourage them to beat back the Romans. So this is what Jesus was warning against, these kinds of things. Um, so what now? At the end of all of this, what can we see? Well, we can very clearly see that Jesus was referring it to the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. If we look at the context, we've got the Jewish glasses in front of us, him talking with his disciples intimately about the temple, their first question being about the temple. Jesus responding with, with a specific response, a, a Jewish response, and also what's going to happen to his believers, his followers, uh, but also the disciples listening with a Jewish understanding. And so we need to understand this from their perspective. And that was the destruction of the temple. We even go back to Daniel, Daniel and the prophecy. We looked at that, how those metaphors, how that relates to the destruction of the temple, even the timing of the sevens. So these are not wild metaphorical analogous images of times to come. And we need to be careful of that. Yes, absolutely, Jesus is coming again and we need to be, we need to be awake. But from when he left, he told his disciples, Behold, I am coming soon. He told his disciples then he's coming soon. And he's still coming soon today. So we need to be careful of declaring things to be signs of the end times, declaring this and that, especially from this passage. And like I said, there are three parts to this, so we still got another two to deal with. But in this first one, the first question that the disciple asked him referred to of the temple, the destruction of the temple. And we can also look at this more broadly as a warning given to his disciples. Well, why is Jesus warning them? Why is he talking about this to them? Because the Romans were coming to Jerusalem. They were going to destroy Jerusalem. And lots of people were going to kill, be killed or die from starvation and malnutrition and everything else wrong that was happening. So what does he say to them? When you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the Romans coming, flee. Don't go down to get your cloak. Don't go down to fetch. Flee. If you're pregnant, woe to you. You've got more trouble because now you have to flee with a child or, or a baby. Um, I pray that it's not on a, a Sabbath or in winter. Imagine trying to flee Jerusalem in the winter back then. And there are a lot of extra biblical accounts as well to confirm that lots of Christians at this time fled Jerusalem before the war. Before the Romans besieged Jerusalem, they fled to the city of Pella, which was in Jordan, on, on the east side of the, the Jordan River. Uh, and like I said, this was the destruction of the Jewish identity and faith, and also the troubled birth of the gospel. Not that it wasn't going to succeed, it was going to. Jesus said, the gospel of this kingdom will be preached, shall be preached to the nations, but it will come with tribulation and difficulty. So I think this is also um, a contrast between the dramatic fall of the Jewish religion and the rise of Christ's kingdom on earth. And that sort of starts when Jesus leaves, goes, ascends into heaven, but it starts more dramatically, I think, when the temple gets destroyed, because now the Jews have nothing and they still have nothing. The Jewish religion that existed back then, I don't believe is very much the same as what we see today. Certainly all the Mosaic laws are the same, absolutely. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the prominent groups at the time 
obviously were wiped out. They, they had no more meaning, no more significance, because temple worship had ceased. The sacrificial system had ceased. And we, we see the rise of rabbinical Judaism, is what they call it. That's what we see today, where lots of laws and lots of commands and lots of uh, descriptions about things are given by rabbis rather than the word. So we, we don't see that Jewishness of the Jewish, that, that inherit, um, you know, what defined the Jews is not, is not, it's a watered down version as what we have today. And I believe that's because that proper religion has evolved into our faith today because Jesus fulfilled the law. He, didn't, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So that Jewish religion, that faith has evolved into what we are. And that's what we see here. This contrast between fall of you know, the strictly Jewish and uh, uh, Pharisees, temple sacrificial giving, all that, and Christ's kingdom on earth. So to end off this first part of our exposition of Matthew 24, I want to leave you with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. And Paul says to, to Timothy, don't have anything to do with foolish and ignorant arguments because you know they produce quarrels. So I haven't looked at proper eschatology today because then we go into post-millennialism and premillennialism and all that arminialism and seven years of tribulation, all those kinds of things. So I'm not looking at that today. I'm just looking at what Matthew 24 says and what Jesus is speaking about. But I do want to encourage you, whatever you believe, you know, maybe you believe that there's going to be a seven years of tribulation. Maybe you believe that Christ is just going to come fetch us. Maybe you believe whatever your eschatological views are, whatever you believe about the end times. Let's not get caught up with those things. Let's not argue about those things. We can go through the word. We can expound it. We can look at what's really happening. And I firmly believe this bit specifically is referring to the temple, not about a time to come. And I don't want to argue and I don't want to upset and I don't want to offend. I just merely want to, to preach what I have believed the word says and what I've studied um, uh, in the word. And like I said, believe what it says. So my encouragement to you is not to argue about these things, not to get caught up in them, not to get lost in them, but rather that our ultimate aim, our ultimate priority is to focus on Jesus. Amen. If I can end with one thing today, it's that in all of this, Jesus is coming soon. He has been coming soon since the beginning, since he left, and he's coming soon today. doesn't mean he's coming soon time-wise. can mean that, but it means we need to be expectant. We need to be waiting. We need to have our hearts right. We need to make sure that we are living for him, building his kingdom, doing what he needs us to be doing. We need to make sure that we are falling on our knees every single day saying, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Father, cleanse me. Take away this ugly, evil nature in my heart. Take away my heart of stone and replace it with your spirit, with a heart of flesh, with a love for you. His grace is freely available each and every single day. And that's what we need to be standing on. Every moment, while we wait for him, as we wait for him to come back, we need to be living in his love, in his grace. Not giving glory unto ourselves, but unto him, for he has done great things. Amen. Amen.
Lastly, I was in Jerusalem a couple of years ago, and this was from the Mount of Olives. That's another angle there. Um, so like I said, some people say the temple stood over there. Others say it was maybe down over here. But just imagine the site. Okay, obviously, I don't think there are any historical accounts of skyscrapers existing back in those days. So I'd imagine that's a more modern development. In fact, all of that is a more modern development. But just, just picture that. This grand, magnificent temple over grand, magnificent Jerusalem. And Jesus says, it's going away. Why? Because there was no need for that. Like I said, we live by his grace. We live by his love. We live by his strength and his power today. We don't need the temple. We don't need to go to Jerusalem and be pilgrims and uh, kill cows anymore and sheep and pigeons and all that. Because the temple of God is where? In our hearts. We are his temple today. As the body, as believers, we are his temple today. Amen. Amen.